Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead this morning and open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, as Jared had mentioned, uh, we're going to be, we'll be having communion. So we're going to look at the traditional communion uh, text. You know, as Jared mentioned, blistery. How many of you thought of Winnie the Pooh like me? <laughs> That's the only time I've heard that word used, blistery. <laughs> All right. Some of you are like, what? If you weren't here early, you missed uh, that word used. Anyways, let's pray. Let's get spiritual here. Lord God, thank you so much once again for this great day where we bless your name, where we glorify your name for all who you are, for all that you do. And I pray this morning as we read your word that you would speak to each and every one of us, Lord God, demonstrating to us through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit who you are and how, Lord God, we are to walk with you. And how, Lord, we can express our thankfulness to you. And so we pray that you bless our time together. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So the, the title of this morning's message is Thankful for So Great a Salvation. As, we'll, as Jared mentioned earlier, we're in the season of Thanksgiving and going out through our topical studies on thankfulness or Thanksgiving uh, so today, we'll, as I mentioned, we'll look at this text and have communion at the end. And so uh, right now, if you didn't know, we live, well, let me say this. When you think of monumental events in your life or in the history of this world, when I say monumental events, I, I mean events that alter the way that you live, events that alter the way that you think about things or even events that change the course of human history. We've all experienced monumental events in our life, whether it's personal or worldwide. I mean, we are all over the past year and a half or maybe two years now have been living through COVID. That's a monumental event and it has changed the way we all live. Some for the good, like reminding everybody to wash their hands often, that's a good thing. I'm all for that. It's amazing that we have to remind people to wash their hands. Um, and then there's things, you know, like it's, you know, disrupted church. You guys remember for the past two years, we, we didn't meet on Sunday. We met outside on Sunday. We changed church times. We were exclusively online. Sometimes it was just me and the worship team here. Everybody else was at home. And even today, there's still some members who have yet to return uh, because of the effects of COVID. And for those of you watching online, maybe even at your own church, uh, that's the case if you're watching as a guest. But the good thing happened is we, you know, fixed our online church service. More people are tuning in, listening to the gospel worldwide. So that's a good thing. But that's a monumental event. How many of you remember 9-11 um, happening, you know, in 2001? That changed the way the world operated. I mean, before we could go to the the airport, and go right up to the gate and say goodbye to people as, or greet people, and you can't do that anymore. That's changed. I think of the internet, how that has changed uh, the way that we lived, and technology as well as changed the way that we live. Well, we also live currently in between two monumental events 
in world history. We call them in the Christian church uh, the Advents, meaning the coming of Jesus into the world. We live between the first Advent, which is what we're going to celebrate next month at Christmas. You might have heard of Christmas as being called the Advent of Jesus. Well, it means the first coming of Jesus physically into this world. So we live after that, but we look forward to the second coming, the second advent. The first advent, if you think of this, how this has transformed the world. I mean, we tell time in world history by the first advent of Jesus. Whether you say B.C. or A.D., or you're trying to rule that out in secular life, and they say before the common era or after the common era, which still points to the birth of Jesus Christ by taking out the, the acronym AD and BC, still refers to the same time frame. That is cataclysmic event. And just think of the joy the event of Christmas brought to the first century people. And even today, even though many people don't realize the significance and the enormousness of the birth of Christ, how they even today still celebrate and get joy from that time of the year. That's a significant event that has changed the course of world history. And as I mentioned, we look forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ. That is the second coming of the Lord. And that event will be monumental beyond any of our understanding. Think about it. This will happen sometime in the future, obviously, and I believe personally that it can happen at any time, for there is nothing preventing Jesus Christ from returning at any moment. And when that happens, this event will bring enormous joy to his followers. It will be an eternal joy, not temporal. Jesus will be with us now and forever. We will experience him uh, in like fully in his bodily form. We will finally see him. We will finally come face to face with a man who has transformed the world, our lives, if you're a believer, somebody that we gather around and sing about and learn about, and we've never physically met him. At some time in the future, that will happen. When that does happen, Jesus will rule and reign on the new earth that is purged from all evil, sickness, and sin. Let me read, before we get into our text, read to you about the second advent. I've read it often, and I think it's good to remind ourselves this. How enormous will this event be? How will this change world history? In the book of Revelation, you could turn there with me, the last book of your Bible, Revelation 21. I'm going to read to you just a few verses, because this is the future. This is what happens right after the second coming, the second advent. The apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. For those of you that are like, what? I like the beach. There's not going to be any sea. Many commentators believe that's just talking about like the sea of like evil or of, of sin. So you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's better for those that like the ocean. And he says, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So right now, Jesus is with us in spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we experience God. But at some time in the future, at the second advent, Jesus Christ will live among us. And we will see him just like we see each other at this moment. Just as we experience one another, there's going to be a time in the future that Jesus is living among us. Look at what verse 4 says. This is what will happen. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is, that's a monumental event. Think of that. Never again will you experience pain. Will you experience suffering? Will you experience crying? God is literally going to take them away. He's going to totally radically transform life as we know it. It goes on to say, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right For these words are faithful and true. He told John, write these things down because these things are true. This is going to happen. It's not a fairy tale. It's not like, oh, after we die, we're floating around like angels and clouds and experience this, you know, this out-of-body experience. No, it's going to be real. This is true, what he says. He says, and then it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God is saying, if you believe these things, when this happens, you are going to be my son. You're going to inherit all these things. This is your future. This is the future of every believer. That's cataclysmic. So again, we live between the first advent, which is what we'll celebrate next month, and the second advent, which is this second coming. This is the future for the believer. Unfortunately, there's there's another side of that. What happens to all those who refuse to believe in Christ and his work in this lifetime? Well, we're promised. If you look at verse 8 of that section, look at what it says. This is what happens. But for the cowardly, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He's saying those people that practice these things, apart from trusting in Christ, that their life is characterized by these things, idolatry and lying and uh, sorcery, and just unbelieving in general, this is their part. So there's two futures. There are those who believe in Christ, accept his work, and they will experience eternal joy. Those who refuse to accept Christ will experience eternal separation from God and torment in what he describes, if you look at verse 8 again, as the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the future for humanity It's either a glorious future 
or it is a sad and pitiful end. And this morning, we're going to look back at the event that made all this possible, that we can look, why we even look forward to the second advent. We're going to look at what made this possible and celebrate this in thankfulness as we partake in communion. You have to know the bad news first, right, in order to know what the good news is and be thankful for it. Sometimes we forget about that. So let's go back to our text, as I mentioned at the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and look at the significance of the first advent. So 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verses 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I, first deli- which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed and took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink, excuse me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll stop right there. Just those few short verses. The Apostle Paul here is instructing believers to celebrate. Celebrate the first advent through the sacrament of communion. A sacrament is just a religious word for a religious rite or a ceremony that was instituted by Jesus. For example, baptism is a sacrament that we practice in the Christian church. It was instituted by Jesus. And communion, which we're going to take in a few moments, is also a sacrament that we're instructed by the Lord to perform. So what are we instructed by the Apostle Paul here in the text to do? And why do we even do this? Well, look at verse 24 again as we explain what we are instructed by Paul to do. Verse 24 tells us that we are instructed to eat the broken bread. And the broken bread, we are told in Scripture, symbolized, or the broken bread symbolically represents Christ's body that was given for us in the form of his death on the cross, you will find that in the Gospels, where Jesus says, eat this bread, it is given for you. I did this for you. Jesus was crucified on the cross, beaten and suffered many things for us. So this is what the bread symbolically represents. So when we take it in a few moments, you're, you're symbolically remembering and as I'll instruct us in the end, to be thankful for Jesus' broken body that he allowed to be tortured and beaten on our behalf. So we're instructed to eat the broken bread. Secondly, we're instructed to drink from the cup of this new covenant. Look at verse 25. He says, in the same manner, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So again, we're, we're remembering what Christ has done for us as we look back to his first advent. And the juice that is within the cup, you know, you will hand them out in a few moments. Some churches use wine. Sorry, we're from the Baptist tradition. We use uh, grape juice. Sorry. <laughs> we're instructed to drink this juice because it symbolically represents the new covenant in Christ's blood that was spilled in his death on the cross. 
His his blood covers our sins, we're told in Scripture. He took our place. So as we look at why we do these things, again, number one, we are instructed to eat the bread, and we are instructed to drink the cup of this new covenant that is sealed in Christ's blood. And why, why do we do this? Number one, to remember the purpose and the meaning of Jesus' death. That's why we do this. We remember that this was the purpose of the first advent. So many times as we think of Christmas, we just see Jesus in a manger, and we think that's it. But the first advent encompasses Jesus' birth, death, burial, and resurrection. It encompasses his entire life while he was here on this earth. That is the first event. And as we partake of communion, we remember the purpose of that. But the other thing we need to remember is why did he do that? Why did Jesus come? Scripture tells us that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. For Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned against the Lord. Each and every one of us, every person throughout human history, past, present, and future, will have sinned, is sinning, or will sin against the Lord. There is nobody in this world who could say, I've never sinned against God. Therefore, Scripture tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, meaning the price that needs to be paid for our sins is death. Because we've sinned against God, we are all dying. That's the price. And there's nothing we can do about it. As many times as we want to stop getting old and getting weak and getting sick and dying, that doesn't happen until the second coming, which I just read about in Revelation 21. We're all facing death because we're all guilty of sin. We all need to pay the price. But thankfully... Scripture tells us that Jesus came and paid the price for our sins. That's why Jesus came that first time, to pay the price. He died for the sins of the world. Romans 5, 8 tells us that, that God sent his son to pay our price. Jesus is saying, you don't have to pay for your sins. I'm going to take them upon myself, and I'm going to die on the cross for you. So what happens If you refuse that, this is why we're told in Revelation 21 is why people are thrown into the lake of burning with fire because they refuse to allow Jesus to take their place. Therefore, they will pay the price of their sins by suffering the wrath of God. So this is, is in essence, the future without Christ, right? Right? We need to pay for our sins. But scripture is telling us, no, Jesus came, took our place on the cross, and died for our sins. What is our part in that? What do we do knowing that? What do we do with that? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 10, look at verses 9 and 10, or you can just write that down and look it up later. This is our part. So that's kind of like the the bad news. We've all sinned against God. Therefore, we're all dying. We all deserve to pay the price. And then we're told that Jesus came and took that price for us, took, took our place, paid the price for us, excuse me. And then in Romans 10 9, or 10, 9 and 10 tells us our part. It says, if we confess with our mouth 
Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Look at that again. Look at verse 9 once again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you verbally express that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's our part. We must confess Christ as Lord. That's what's saying. Believing he's the Lord of your life. Believing what he's done on the cross for you. And believing that he rose from the dead in your heart. It's not just a story we tell. It's truth. It's reality. Then you will be saved. That is our part. So when we take communion, what we're doing is we're remembering the purpose and the meaning of Jesus' death when we hold that cracker, when we drink the juice. We're remembering all these things that he has done for us. Not only that, verse 26, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, tells us that we're doing something else when we partake of communion. Look at verse 26. It says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so every time we do this, the Apostle Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're telling people, even ourselves, reminding ourselves what Jesus has done for us, which is what I just went through explaining. But as you partake of this juice and bread in a few moments, you are proclaiming to the world around us what we are doing. We're proclaiming that Jesus died. We're proclaiming his death, and we do it until he returns at that second advent. We're proclaiming Lord's death verbally and symbolically. We're showing people with signs what Jesus has done. So again, why do we take communion? To remember the purpose and meaning of Jesus' death. Number two, to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And then number three, when we take communion, you are, we are saying and you are saying, I am a believer in Christ's work at his first advent. You're saying, I believe that when Jesus came, he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. You're believing that. You're saying, yes, I believe that he came and died for me. Yes, I believe that he rose from the grave. Otherwise, how could he come again a second time? You're saying, yes, I believe he will come again. So when we partake of the sacrament of communion, we are proclaiming that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all what that encompasses to mean. It's not just taking a, you know, doing a religious activity, a religious rite. There is a meaning behind all of this. Not only are we doing those things. Fourthly, we're saying we look forward to your second advent, your second coming. Right, Because the Apostle Paul says, we do this until he comes. There's going to be a time where we no longer do communion. Because as I read at the very beginning in Revelation 21, it's because Christ is going to be with us. His work has finished completely. It's fully consummated. We're with him forever. We're no longer having to be reminded that he's coming again. So we take communion. We're saying, we look forward to your return, Lord. Again, 
I, can't, I wouldn't understand why nobody would look forward to what I just read in Revelation 21, because I hate pain. I don't know about you. I don't like suffering. I don't like crying. All those things are going to be wiped away. Nobody's going to hurt me. Nobody that I love is going to ever die again. I'm hopefully I could see better, you know. My eyes will be restored as I'm getting older. Man, I could, I mean, I can't even see Jared's face in the back clearly. I'm sure you look good, Jared, but right now you're kind of fuzzy. One day the Lord's going to restore all that. I mean, who doesn't want that? I mean, we spend our life trying to keep ourselves from falling apart. Lord's going to put it all back together and never going to have to worry about it again. So we say we're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to being reunited with loved ones who have died and gone before us. Fifthly and lastly, we're also saying, when we think of all this, what I started out, the title of this message, is we're saying thank you. Thank you, Lord, for doing all this for me. Thank you for dying for me, for paying the price for me, for giving me eternal life, for giving me a future that I can look forward to. We're saying thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation. That's what we're doing when we take communion. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. And I would invite those of you this morning who have yet to taste the Lord's salvation. We sung about that. Our first song was Taste and See. Very appropriate. Maybe you're saying, no, I don't know anything about that. I've never experienced salvation from the Lord. I've never repented of my sin and embraced the Lord as Lord, I've never called him Lord, and I don't believe in my heart. I, would, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. When the worship team comes up in a few moments, and before the elements come out, I would I'd urge you to, in your time alone to cry out to the Lord, to repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for sinning against you. And then receiving him as Lord and Savior by confessing him as Lord. Say, I believe just what I just talked about a little moment. I believe all that you've done. I believe you did that for me. And I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I would encourage you this morning to do that if you never have. Secondly, for those of you that have already tasted the Lord's salvation, which I venture is the majority of us in here. I pray it's everyone, but I can never assume that. I don't know where your heart is. But for those of you that have tasted the Lord's salvation, I would remind you to take communion this morning with a thankful and grateful heart for so great a salvation. So I'm going to have the worship team come up, and then I'll pray, and then we'll partake of communion together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. As we... Get ready to partake of communion and remembering what you went through on the cross and your suffering, how you paid our price. May that always be present in our mind, Lord, understanding what you've done for us and being grateful for that. And I also pray this morning, Lord, for those that are in this room, those who are listening, who have maybe never experienced your salvation who maybe this is the first time they've heard the, the message that you've died for them, that you took their place, and that uh, they 
need to repent. I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to understand what you've done for them and for them to repent and to believe upon your name. And Lord, we, in a few moments, will celebrate all this in communion. We ask that it would glorify you and honor you, and it would be a great witness and testimony for all of us in here and those who are watching online of your great work and the great salvation that you have won for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.